Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Prometheus Podcast, where we discuss all things macro, markets, and investing. I'm your host, Ahan, and I'm the founder of Prometheus Research. This is the second episode in a series of many podcasts to come, where we bring you thoughtful, insightful, and actionable conversations. Today, we have the pleasure of once again hosting Darius Dale, founder and CEO of 42 Macro. For those who missed our previous conversation, I highly recommend you give it a listen for a better understanding of a sophisticated macro framework. While in our last conversation, we focused more on mechanics, today we're going to spend our time discussing the current state of the economy and the outlook for markets. And boy, is there a lot to discuss. Darius, the first time was so nice, we just had to do it twice. <laughs> My man, it's good to be back, dude. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on. All right, Darius, there's a, there's a lot going on right now and a lot to discuss. So let's start with what's top of everyone's mind. Last week at Jackson Hole, Powell told us that labor markets, financial conditions, and real economic activity are all sacrifices the Fed are willing to make to tame inflation. Now, saying something and going through with it are two different things. What's your take on the path ahead for the Fed? Uh, my take on the path ahead for the Fed is the Fed has no freaking clue what it's doing, uh, it, just from the perspective of you know where will policy be three to six months from now, because at the end of the day, we're all, including Jay Powell and the members of the FOMC, are reacting to, you know, rare record inflation dynamism that, you know, is hard to forecast and project. I mean, um, you know, we've been doing a lot of work on this recently for 42 macro subscribers. And, you know, one key takeaway is that, you know, when you're in a higher inflation world, higher inflation has empirically been proven, or at least we're, we've empirically proved, um, tends to create higher inflation volatility. And as a function of that, you tend to get higher volatility in both real and nominal economic growth. And as a function of that, you tend to get depressed multiples, et cetera. It's all a series of catalysts as a function of having high inflation. But the key takeaway is it gets really hard to forecast. And that's kind of the key, you know, kind of like underlying message, which is, you know, I think we are all as investors have to be a little bit more data dependent. And I don't think the invest average investor realizes how data dependent this Fed is going to be over the next, let's call it six months or so. Right. And and the thing about inflation today is that it's also mechanically a little bit different from the typical kind of cyclical inflation we've seen. So um, during the depths of the pandemic, the government went out and injected cash into the economy in two ways, right? They injected reserves into the financial system and they injected income into the real economy. And, but production didn't increase. Now the Fed can can drain liquidity via quantitative tightening, so they can remove some of the reserves. But the problem I think that we're facing today is that you can't drain the fiscal impulse, yeah. right? So you can't actually erode that cash. So as a result, the only way to to actually do it would be through taxation, but that's clearly not something that's going to happen in this policy setting. Going so, in another direction, <laughs> exactly. So. So the, I think that the situation is very, very much uh, a situation where we either have to somehow manage to grow into, you know, this excessive amount of liquidity that's in the real economy, or we need to somehow be able to moderate the amount of liquidity on the credit side. And that's what the Fed's trying to do. Um, I think going off that, I wonder how you think the inflation outlook will evolve over like a longer term time frame and how the Fed is going to react to that data. Yeah, so I'll start by saying, you know, and co-signing what you're saying with respect to the supply-demand imbalance, because it's one of the things that sort of gets me going and grinds my gears, which is this view, this concept among some investors that, you know, uh, that inflation is supply shock driven, you know, the Fed can't drill for oil, Fed can't plant wheat, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and they're, you know, put things on or undock, un <laughs> or uh, disembargo boats and et cetera, et cetera. 
you know, at the end of the day, like, yeah, those things are all true, but let's not forget. I think people conveniently forget in this sort of um, Fed discussion, Fed reaction function discussion, that the fiscal authority dumped six and a half trillion dollars into the economy in like 18 months, you know, <laughs> on, a, on a, like an 18 trillion dollar economy, right? Like that's a, that's a really big deal in terms of, um, you know, the kind of demand, the excess, excess demand it created. Not only did it create excess demand, it created excess demand in a period where there was obviously a negative shock to global supply chains, you know, in terms of COVID, et cetera, et cetera. So we are here today in a situation where we all have way too much money as consumers and businesses relative to the total amount of goods and services the economy, not just domestically, but globally, can produce. And as a function of that, markets are doing exactly what they're supposed to do. When you have excess demand relative to supply, what happens to price? They go up. And so in order to sort of, um, you know, to get businesses, get producers of goods and, 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 and provide proprietors of services to create more goods and services, you need to, they need to charge more. And obviously on the services side, we continue to be quite constrained from a labor supply perspective, particularly here in the US, you know, labor force participation rates down, still down 130 basis points with its pre-COVID high. Home to population ratio still down 120 basis points. So we have a, a constraint on the production of goods and services, which is, you know, continuing to further the, um, the, the kind of the, uh, the trend of underlying trend of inflation higher. Uh, we talked about this in the most recent podcast, but, you know, we built this uh, secular inflation model. It's a pretty sophisticated dynamic factor model that effectively is arguing for, one, an inflection in the long-term mean of the time series of inflation, but two, an inflection to that uh, forecast range of, you know, sort of like uh, 60 to 100 basis points more of trend inflation over the, uh, you know, the ensuing uh, decade. You know, that doesn't sound like a lot, but that's like 40 to 60% more trend inflation than we got in the previous decade. And so from that perspective, I think, you know, we have a whole host of questions that you and I can discuss today about, hey, what's going to be the Fed's reaction function to this newer, higher structural inflation world? Um, what's the Fed's reaction function to the current inflation, right? The Fed's the current reaction function is very clearly, let's get it back to 2%. Uh, I'm not so sure they're going to be very successful with that over the long term, although very clearly over the short term, they can, they can do whatever they want. Right. And on the Fed, there's, there's something in our work that I'd like to highlight, which is that there seems to be a mismatch between, on a compositional basis, what is driving labor markets mm -hmm. and what's driving aggregate income. So if we do the decomposition, what we've seen is that what is driving aggregate income is much more resilient, high wage industries relative to what's driving labor markets, which is, you know, much more pro-cyclical industries like food and beverages, food and accommodations, things like that. Yeah. And what that creates is a situation where if you have a cyclical slowing, you can actually have a situation where income, so nominal income is still elevated and yeah. labor markets are still tightening. And now the, the question kind of becomes the feds between a rock and a hard place then, right? And, yeah. you know, they're going to have a difficult set of choices to make. How do you think they would they would respond to an environment where, you know, the labor market starts to tighten, but this inflation just, you know, it's the genie's out of the bottle. We're, we're in an acceleration and we're probably going to stay here. Yeah. So, I mean, look, it, it's 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 very rare, um, you know, so like much like with, um, you know, with when, when you are in a, in a crisis period in financial markets and correlations, you know, trend towards one, you tend to get that same dynamic in the labor market when things start to come unglued. You know, when you ever start to see a backup in unemployment rate of any consequence, and usually when you get a backup in unemployment rate, they tend to be of consequence, you know, you tend to start to get uh, the dispersion across uh, industries um, tends to narrow. Um, so I, I would expect that same dynamic to persist 
in, in, in any sort of labor market downturn uh, that we that we experience. So in the next, you know, in, in this particular economic cycle, I'm not so sure we are going to get one. Now, again, I expect to get one. I think that's the modal outcome um, from, a, from a base and bare case scenario perspective when you add up those two probability sets. But there's a whole sort of, in my opinion, kind of a third of the distribution that says you don't even need to have a labor market downturn. And the reason I say that goes back to some of the inflation dynamism we saw in the month of July. You know, for instance, um, trim mean uh, uh, CPI inflation decelerated 461 basis points when you look at it on a month-over-month annualized rate of change basis. We saw median CPI slow 247 basis points. Sticky CPI slow 270 basis points. Core PCE inflation slow 629 basis points. Again, these are all month-over-month annualized rates of change. But again, we're looking at them from a sequential perspective because we understand the sequentials will lead the year-over-year time series lower. And so to bring that up, you know, these are the kinds of moves to the downside in inflation that have historically never been recorded outside of recession. I mean, these are just, it's, it's incredible to see inflation break down like this outside of recession. And so it does lend some credence to the view that, hey, inflation may have very well been transitory. It just wasn't transitory enough to prevent the Fed from going embarking on this very uh, uh, tighter policy. But the reason I say we may not have to experience labor market downturn, because if inflation does prove transitory, and if these breakdowns in inflation in terms of the levels we've broken down to are sustained and, and we continue to break down on an annualized basis, month over month, three month annualized. By the time we get into, you know, let's call it November, December, we may be looking at a very different inflation picture, you know, from the perspective of the momentum of the time series. And again, Jay Powell has said this, so many uh, Fed heads have already said this more or less, Jim Bullard has confirmed this as well. They're not waiting to see the year over year rate of change of headline PCE inflation or core PCE inflation to get to 2%. They will stop tightening well before that. We know that. So as investors, we need to sort of front run when they might feel comfortable that the time series is heading towards that. And but it could very well be that comfortability may very well be sort of um, you know, introduced into the marketplace as quickly as Q4 of this year, based on what we observed in the July data. Now, I'm not saying that's the modal outcome. I just, based on what's happening in the data, it should be something that's very present on investors sort of in, in investor mosaics, because again, I don't think this risk, this upside risk to markets has been, uh, it wasn't appropriately discounted in June. Right, and uh, I think that uh, that sort of, you know, speaks to this idea of maybe having a soft landing, right? Yeah, exactly, um, that's it. Exa yeah, and I think that, that what that means for risk assets is a very different kind of outlook relative to, to what we have now. But at the same time, we still are in this kind of elevated inflation dynamic, right? So mm -hmm. from a from a market's perspective on a forward-looking basis, how, how how are you contextualizing all of this? How are you making, maybe we can start with the equity market, you know, to, to make sense of things. Yeah, absolutely. So starting with the equity market, and, and I'll use, I'll take it a step further, just, you know, use equity market as a proxy for risk assets. You know, credit will have a lower beta, crypto will have a higher beta. You know, so kind of think about it in that regard, because they're all correlated. You know, when I, I think about this, from the, you know, let's say the SPY, the SPY around 4,000 or just shy of 4,000 is, you know, fairly reasonably priced from the perspective of our base case scenario, which suggests, you know, we wind up in something that looks like a softish landing or, you know, what economists call a growth recession, which is, you know, a period of below trend growth that doesn't necessarily cause an outright economic downturn, you know, an actual recession as, 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 um, as, as, as indicated by the MBER and you know, significant decline in incomes across the economy. 
you know, that is, you know, kind of my base case scenario is like, we're just headed for a really, you know, for lack of a better phrase, shitty economic period, you know, based on the amount of tightening we've accumulated thus far and the tightening we're likely to accumulate in September and November. If, however, inflation proves stickier and resilient, because again, I think, as I mentioned at the outset, it's very difficult to forecast these dynamics when they're moving as quickly as they are. Um, if inflation does prove sticky and resilient, and let's say the month over month or three month annualized rates of change of these core, indica- uh, core inflation indicators kind of bottoms out around three and a half to four or even three, you know, like, you know, three is still 50% higher than the Fed's inflation target, right? And so, you know, like if we start to bottom out and like plateau, reverse plateau, I guess, at those kinds of levels, then it tells you that the Fed is going to be engaged in this policy tightening effort for much longer than I think the markets are currently pricing in. I mean, if you look at euro dollars or overnight index swaps, the market is starting to price in rate cuts very marginally, not as aggressively as as what was priced in, you know, kind of at the lows of June in terms of the, the spread between these 23 and these 22, but they're still starting to price that in kind of like six, nine months from now. And I'm not so sure that that's an appropriate bet to make in an environment where inflation momentum stalls out at around, you know, somewhere between three and 4%, which is, I think is probably the modal outcome at this point, given, you know, all that we know about some of these changing inflation dynamics. Right. And then to lateral over across markets, how, how does the treasury market digest this information? Because, you know, on, on one hand, you're going to have to sort of, you know, deal with this elevated level, level of inflation relative to what we've seen in history. But on the flip side, you might actually be in a deceleration phase. So I, I think that so far, you've actually had, once again, this resurgence of this idea that the treasury won't be able to actually be able to, to, to handle this kind of economic environment. How are you looking at this on a forward-looking basis? Yeah, so, I mean, what we've, we've shown uh, empirically in our research that, you know, when you get into 3 to 5% inflation, the, the core inverse correlation between stocks and bonds flips to positive. When you're persistently over 5%, you're talking about a pretty significant positive correlation there. So, um, I, you know, that data obviously works in reverse. So until we get, you know, inflation momentum breaking down, to levels that are, you know, at the bare minimum, in my opinion, you know, kind of on the low, you know, low threes, I don't expect stocks and bonds to be inversely correlated. I expect stocks and bonds to continue with this positive correlation because one of the things, obviously, that's driven so much realized volatility in the equity and, and, and risk asset side of the sphere this year is the volatility in fixed income. And the volatility in fixed income is stemming from the fact that the market is having a very difficult time pricing the appropriate path of Fed policy. Right. You go back to the beginning of the year when it was maybe they'll hike uh, once or twice this year. And then all of a sudden, well, I don't know how many hikes we've gotten, but, you know, we, we've definitely gotten a significant one. Of them. We've got many multiples of one or two hikes this year. And then you go to like uh, June through July and then into early August, markets pricing and rate cuts in 2023. And then now we're at this, you know, kind of third phase of the monetary policy regime where markets are pricing out those rate cuts and pricing in tighter for longer. And so the market is having a really hard time of projecting the, the, the most likely path forward for Fed policy. And part of the reason the market's having a really hard time goes back to what we said at the beginning of the discussion. Higher inflation begets higher inflation volatility. Higher inflation volatility begets higher volatility and nominal, real economic, nominal and real economic growth. And on that point, one thing as investors, we're having a difficult time ascertaining, which is the relationship between things like nominal economic output and corporate earnings. 
I would argue corporate earnings have been kind of a stealth surprise to a lot of investors uh, throughout the year to date. We've basically seen real final sales, real GDP, all that kind of stuff ground to zero um, in terms of a growth perspective or even net negative in, in, in certain uh, respects. And earnings are still you know, quite robust, particularly for you know, some of the major large caps that are carrying the index from a capitalization perspective. And so you know, it's, it's a, there's a lot to come at investors with in terms of, man, we don't have a good handle on, on the most probable level inflation is going to settle out at over the next, let's call it six months or so from a momentum perspective. It's unclear the kind of linkages that we have historically had between real GDP and let's say corporate earnings. Those linkages appear to be breaking down in so much that the linkages between things like unit labor cost inflation and productivity are not having the kind of deleterious impacts on corporate earnings as they've had in historical cycles. So this is a very weird, funky cycle. And a lot of, you know, kind of standard economic modeling is breaking down and it's putting a lot of onus on investors to kind of have a lot more sort of Bayesian-ness, if you will, uh, in their process in terms of interpreting data, kind of, you know, kind of extrapolating what these, you know, changes are, are meaning forward on, on, a, on a go forward basis. I'd like to actually uh, pull on that thread a, a little bit because there is this idea that um, that corporate earnings and corporate profits are in nominal terms, and therefore, once the actual the adjustment happens for discount rates, that corporate earnings can survive, which actually creates some sort of oxygen for equity markets, right? Yeah. Um, do you what do you think of this idea? Do you think it makes sense in the current context? So. You know, in over the next year or so, if we have a situation where nominal profits are elevated, is this net a support for equities, or do you think that it actually matters where inflation's at? No, I think it's a net support. I think it, I think we've proven that it's a net support. I mean, we rallied from thirty six hundred ish to forty three hundred ish. You know, like I think I think that rally uh, clearly was driven by a lot of fundamental or sorry positioning changes in amongst the you know kind of um, systematic community. But I think there was fundamental information as well. Q2 earnings were a lot better than expected. Inflation broke down a lot faster than we've ever seen outside of recession. And oh, by the way, we got some pretty important economic information like the jobs report, the, the ISM services data, consumer confidence data, all this stuff telling you that, hey, look, you underprice a Goldilocks soft landing, uh, Mr. Market, you, we need, you know, or not Mr. Market, Mr. Market is telling us that we as a collective investment community underprice the probability of a Goldilocks soft landing. Now at 4,300, we're probably overpricing that. And this speaks to your question on, on earnings. You know, there is a, you know, if we do get this sort of, we still, if we, let's say we live in a world, we, sorry, I believe we are transitioned to a world of higher nominal growth, higher inflation, higher economic volatility associated with all that. And so as a function of transition to that world, we have to accept the fact that, you know, the former definition of the neutral policy rate at 2.5% is probably not the right, what might the level. Uh, I, no one knows what the neutral rate is. I'm not even going to waste my own time trying to calculate it. But I think we can all agree that this neutral rate in today's in, in economy is not the same as it was in 2018, which Jay Powell, may, in my opinion, made a mistake in communicating. And so if we aren't at neutral even at this particular juncture in time, it's September 1st we're recording, we're not even at neutral. That means we're technically still in accommodative territory, right? If we're being honest. And so this is an economy that, you know, maybe is not being sort of, um, you know, aided and abetted in terms of being given gas like it was in, in 2020 and 2021, but it's probably not an economy that is really being materially held back either, right? And this is why you're seeing such strength in dynamism and corporate profitability and the jobs market. And so in my opinion, if you don't get that breakdown in corporate profitability, or there's no real material threat to corporate operating margins, 
then why are we going to have a recession? Why are corporates going to fire a bunch of people? You know, I, I just, you know, to me, it's like, I think we need to be, and the reason why I'm spending so much time talking about the upside risk, because I think most investors are bearish and most of including myself, most investors understand the bear case. I don't think the average investor even has a clue what the bull case is. You know what I mean? And so that's why I think it's important in this discussion to understand, help investors understand and contextualize that full distribution of outcomes because it is, it's pretty wide. as It's about as flat and wide as I've seen in years. I think that's a very important point because, you know, really, really are we right about things in markets, right? Um, which, uh, you know, the best of the best maybe have 55 to 60% hit ratios, which are the very large probability of being wrong. So, you know, this, this yeah. focus on where you could be wrong, because, you know, you've laid out your bear case that we're likely in a situation of slowing real growth, heightened inflation, but you're spending a good deal of time highlighting to us why it makes sense to look at the other side, because, Markets so over the last month or so are confirming what you're saying, you know, maybe over the last two months or so seem to be confirming what you're saying. Yeah. Um, the the question I want to go back to is, so with regards to the idea of neutral interest rates and the Fred, if neutral is indeed higher, which it probably is, does that also mean that a target for inflation should be also higher and that eventually the Fed will have to change their opinion on this? Yeah, 100%, man. So right now they don't have to, right? Because again, we haven't seen any real degradation in the employment picture in the labor market. And so the, the decision on that front is an easy decision to make. Of course, we're not going to revise our inflation target higher. We can talk tough and channel our you know, inner Volcker and, and try to get inflation back to two. And they'll probably be very successful getting it from nine to four or nine to three even. But how do you go from four to two or three to two? That's where you experience the real pain in the labor market and the downgrade and in, in degradation of, of employment and total employment, aggregate income, et cetera. Are they going to be willing to make that choice at the, in that moment? And to me, I'm not sure. I don't know the answer to that. I expect, just based on reading their tea leaves, which again are informed by a very strong, robust labor market, that they will be comfortable you know, sending the economy into an actual recession if they need to you know, do that in order to go from four to two or three to two. We'll have to assess the tea leaves at that particular point in time, however, let's call it six, nine, 12 months from now. Because again, it's a lot easier to talk tough on inflation when you're going from nine to three. It's much harder to, to go take the unemployment rate from four to seven. You know, you can go from three and a half to four. That's who, who cares? Everyone will care when you go from six to seven or seven, eight. You know, that is the issue. And that's how you get inflation back to your target structurally and sustainably. I'm not sure that this is a Federal Reserve, in my opinion. That is going to be willing to do that. So to answer your question, I think a year from now, we're going to be talking about a positive revision to the Fed, to the Fed's inflation target. Adam Posen at the PDM Institute, Pearson Institute has already talked about this for over a year now. I think the mainstream economics, in the same way that MMT in 2018 and 2019 went from nothing we cared about to the, the basically running the government, I think this, this concept of revising up the Fed's inflation target will go from nothing we're talking about. To something you know that's very um very much dictating monetary policy but that's probably 12 18 months from now yeah and that's that's a that's a, that's very far away from putting on risk right now but yeah, I, totally. I think it's you can't, you can't put that risk on today i i think it's also just important to to highlight that when we enter these periods of labor market degradation right they are extremely sharp and short so, you know, a deteriorating labor market creates this situation of, you know, self-reinforcing lower incomes and lower employment. And, you know, the, the size of moves to the downside for labor markets during these periods 
is probably about five times the 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 regular rate of change in the labor yeah. market. So I what I think is is very much going to happen is that you're going to have this degradation in the labor market. And then the Fed is is going to have to react and they're going to have to deal with this pain and they're going to have to watch this pain when they're trying to tighten and they're trying to reach a 2% inflation objective, which in this environment seems highly unlikely. And you know, if we go through history, and maybe you can talk about your own study of the inflation, the history of inflation. But if we go through history and the the, the period that everyone likes, the 70s, it actually took a couple of times of hiking to do this. Yeah. They eased oh. off the gas and it just didn't work. And I think this goes to the idea that inflation is autocorrelated and once it takes off, it takes off. Yep. Yeah, no, and I think one thing, it, to give Powell some credit, he called this out at the uh, Jackson Hole speech, which is like the premature pivot is almost like as bad as not doing anything on inflation because you know all you're doing is kind of reinforcing markets uh, sort of belief that you're not going to be an inflation fighter, right? Um, and so to me, I think it does, like if we're being honest again, I mean, we're always being honest, but just using it as a euphemism, but like, the because they are aware of the failures of the 1970s in terms of the premature pivot, the probability of them pivoting prematurely is lower. So that's probably bearish in the near term, but I also think that's at the margin, it's probably bullish in the long term because what it ultimately means is they're probably going to be reticent to really take the Fed funds rate, the terminal Fed funds rate up to a level that would force a premature pivot, right? If they take it to five, let's say, I assume five will be fairly restrictive, then they're probably going to see a lot more economic deterioration than they currently want or you know, anticipate relative to the forecast. And so they will have to pivot. But if they take it to four and just sit on their hands at four for 18 months, then that, you know, that's in our in my opinion, I think that's what they would like to do. And in that scenario, you probably don't have the kind of economic downside that you would in a scenario where you did this and forced the Fed to go back down in terms of the Fed funds rate. So in my opinion, I think. You know, I tweeted this the other uh, the other week. Actually, I tweeted this during the speech. It's like the world investors have to be comfortable and really start to do their homework on what does the investment world look like in a world where the Fed takes the Fed funds rate to four, does nothing with it all throughout 2023, and does a trillion dollars of balance sheet contraction, or you know, technically be around you know 1.1 something trillion. But also understanding the fact that we might be in an economy where four percent on the Fed funds rate it's not all that restricted. You know, so like, what do you do as an investor in that scenario? Is that bullish or is it bearish? You know, I think it's going to be very difficult to, to risk manage. If you told me that at the end of 2023, the S&P 500 is at 4,000 and we had a 10% drawdown from here and a 20 something percent rally, you know, and then we wound up at back at 4,000. Sure. Why not? That seems like a reasonable scenario in this, in this, in that, in that environment, I, that picture I just painted. And I'd like you to expand a little bit more. So we, we have a good sense of the, the whole, the divergent set of probable outcomes, right? As an investor um, who is looking cross-asset and also looking at various factor strategies and such, how are you thinking about navigating this environment? There's obviously the, the, the idea of being nimble, but beyond that, how are you thinking about putting on risk in this kind of environment to protect capital and to grow it? Yeah, so first principles is understand kind of the rate of change of what's happening, right? Like understand the grid regime. You know, we talked about our, our grid regime framework in the previous episode. We're heading from what, or at least, you know, according to our forecast, from, you know, a sustained period of what we call inflation. That's where growth's decelerating, trending lower, and inflation is trending higher. 
and we're transitioning, you know, basically here and now in September, you know, to deset to deflation, which is what we where growth and inflation are trending lower simultaneously. And so, you know, without even having to express these these bets in absolute terms, you can actually take advantage of the expected dispersion in that kind of regime. Because what typically happens is you almost always, you know, very consistently get persistent outperformance of defensive sectors and style factors in the equity markets, equity and credit markets. And you typically get the outperformance of more, um, you know, credit, the underperformance of credit sensitive instruments in the fixed income markets. And so in terms of how we're set up from a portfolio construction perspective, we have that bet on. Now, do we want to be leaning net short or leaning net long? That's a much harder discussion right now. And I would have a lot more, um, you know, for the audience and for, you know, for, you know, for our subscribers, you know, once we get this in August inflation data, and once we start to see how that's evolving, because again, I want to have, if I'm leaning that long, you know, it's certainly in the context of still having that dispersion trade on. If I start leaning that long, that's because I have a confidence that inflation is probably going to sustain, you know, this kind of momentum to the downside, uh, you know, on a month over month, three month annualized basis. If we start leaning that short, it's because, oh my God, this is going to be a longer process to get back to 3%. You know, then I think investors realize, or certainly they realize that 4,300 on the S&P. So, you know, as it relates to what to do today, I'm not sure I have the answer outside of, you know, putting on the deflation playbook from a dispersion perspective. You know, that's long treasuries at the expense, long treasuries and IU credit at the expense of, you know, the high yield credit, you know, or convertible bonds, you know, bank loans, et cetera. Within the equity market, it's long, small, high beta, it's long, low beta relative to high beta, long defenses relative to cyclicals. Obviously, you know what to do from the sector perspective in that regard. So, and obviously in the FX market is dollar, yen, Swiss franc, short euro, short British pound, short commodity currencies. Commodities is a, a much more different asset class in terms of you know dispersion bets. It's pretty idios idiosyncratic, but generally speaking, your commodity exposure should be lowered in this you know kind of next three to six months than it had been in the prior let's call it six to nine months. This is excellent because uh, the the way you've expressed your bets actually segues really nicely into something we both spend a good deal of time looking at, which is uh, liquidity, right? Yeah. And um, and a way that I would think about, you know, the expressions that you've you've laid out is essentially telling you that, oh, we're in a tightening liquidity environment. These are the assets that typically perform during these environments relative to the other ones, right? So if I'm looking at duration relative to credit, or if I'm looking at low beta relative to high beta, these these things do well during periods of spiking vol and also tightening liquidity, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I guess that's the elephant in the room that we haven't discussed yet, right? Um, what do you think? So we know we've talked a lot about the interest rate path. I think the the next thing to really discuss is um the balance sheet path for the Fed and how that's going to tie into all of this. Yeah. So to me, I like we you know everyone talks about this concept of net liquidity, and there's a thousand different definitions. Everyone's got their own model, whatever works for them. And you know, generally speaking, it's going to be comprised of some of the same features. You know, one thing that I think is um kind of an underrated aspect of liquidity in this particular juncture is the excess liquidity we're seeing in the reverse repo facility, right? The part of the reason, in my opinion, we've seen such a drawdown in net liquidity this year is because of that, you know, parabolic ascent in the reverse repo facility balances. You know, I think we're somewhere around 2.2 trillion. Um, that stopped, that parabolic ascent really did come to conclude or conclude, or at least the bare minimum has taken a pause since, you know, kind of late June. Um, it's gone really kind of sideways since then. Um, will we continue, will, we, will it resume that ascent in a world where we're having a little bit more financial market volatility, yeah, that's most likely outcome. But again, it doesn't have to go. 
you know, that's at the end of the day, at the beginning, from a first principles perspective, the only reason that money is there is because there's excess liquidity in the in the banking system and in the financial sector. And if mutual fund A or hedge fund B decides it wants to actually lever up and 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 and, and put the capital to work, we're going to actually see that balance drain and go down, right? And the only reason that would obviously happen, and and that's in that scenario, is if we do get some news and relief on the inflation front that you know kind of lends credence to the what I would consider to be a very nascent uh, nascent reemergence of the transitory view. If that view becomes the, the, the modal outcome amongst the investment community, we're actually going to see reverse repo balances counteract quantitative tightening, in my, in, at least in my opinion. I think that'll be the most likely outcome. And so in that scenario, we might not be in a declining liquidity environment anymore. It might just be like a neutral, a net, it will still be a net tightening given the Fed, what the Fed will be doing from a policy rate perspective. But again, even that will culminate you know, sooner than expected. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, we don't know the answers from an inflation standpoint, because again, we're seeing levels of dynamism in inflation that we've never recorded outside of recession. So we need to be humble as forecasters and investors in terms of projecting that forward. Let's, let's, let's be Bayesian about uh, the, most, you know, the next updates, et cetera. If we get information that says, or that suggests rather, because you're never going to know, that, that it might suggest that the process of going from nine to three is going to be a stochastic you know, kind of a, you know, meandering process, then we're going to have problems. Um, because again, I don't think you're going to see a, a significant reduction in the reverse repo facility balances. And at the same time, you don't see a significant reduction. It may actually climb. It may actually continue to climb. And if it continues to climb, you're going to be climbing alongside, obviously, the scheduled quantitative tightening. And that's how you get the death knell for equity and credit markets and, and crypto markets, which is exactly what we saw in the first half of this year. I love this opinion because it's definitely very different from uh, the things that you're typically hearing on the street these days, um, especially when it comes to this uh, this idea of repo, reverse repo facilities draining. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that in the sense of what are the pro-cyclical things that we need to see on the growth side to be able to say that, hey, this would catalyze you know a drain in the reverse repo facility? Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about why it, why it even exists, right? or not why it exists, but why it's so oversubscribed or you know heavily subscribed at the moment. There's currently a treasury bill shortage, I think by, by design in terms of uh, Janet Yellen understanding how all these dynamics works. And as a function of this treasury bill shortage, you know, there's all this cash in money market funds that doesn't really have a home or there's no suitable home for it because T-bill yields are significantly lower than the amount of money that they can get on their money by parking it with the Fed. And so you know, they've sort of created this kind of like you know, traffic cone system where money is excess liquidity is being funneled effectively in to the reverse repo facility balance. And part of the reason that money even exists to begin with, right, is because investors, the end investors, hedge funds, mutual funds, don't want companies even don't want to take duration risk. You know, they don't want to take credit risk. They basically said, I don't want these risks in my portfolio. So I'm, uh, let's use mutual fund, for example, you know, mutual funds tend to have like 5% cash, you know, on average. Well, I don't want to have five percent cash. I want to have eight percent cash. Uh, look at me. I'm, I'm, I'm. I, you know, <laughs> mutual fund says they raise cash. They're going from like five to eight, right? You know, <laughs> but that three hundred basis points of extra cash has to go somewhere, right? And it, and instead of going to, you know, mutual, they put it in a money market fund. And the money market fund's like, well, if I buy a T bill, it's going to yield give me thirty basis points less than if I just pop, park it in the reverse repo facility. Why don't I just park it in the reverse repo facility? But what happens if mutual fund A decides to go from eight percent cash back to five? then the money has to come out and go back into financial markets. And my point is, is 
is that decision to, to take go from five to 8% cash or eight to five is an economic decision. It's based on how much duration and credit risk an investor or even liquidity risk an investor wants to take in their, in their portfolio and their in portfolio. And so all I'm trying to say is we can't just assume a linear path down in net liquidity because if inflation behaves, you're going to give a green light to end investors to take duration and credit risk. And as a function of that, things will you know, be getting on better kind of on steroids. So again, I don't think that's the modal outcome. I'm just talking about it. To, again, I don't think the average investor, and you, thank you for um, acknowledging this, has any idea that there's this whole kind of right tail risk you know, in markets right now that I don't think they, because they're not analyzing the inflation data with any you know, kind of rigor, I don't think they understand this right tail risk. But again, I think the modal outcome is lower in net liquidity, lower in stock and, and risk asset prices. And as a function, low, probably lower in bond prices as well, because again, until we get to 5%-ish inflation, those things are probably going to be positively correlated. Darius, you've got to be the most bullish bear I've ever met. Um, <laughs> Just a guy trying to make money, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, it's a great orientation to have, really. Um, I, I think what investors need to be focused on definitely is this path for CPI. And um, why don't you help our listeners kind of understand what you're going to be looking for in the prints, both on a compositional basis and on a, you know, acceleration, deceleration basis over the next print to be yeah. able to kind of validate or invalidate, you know, this, this outlier risk that you're highlighting. Great question. Um, and so let's, let's talk about like what we expect um, first, you know, on the inflation side, you know, we have these significant breakdowns, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of, um, the decline and on a month over month annualized rate of change basis and all these core inflation metrics, these various means, you know, various um, uh, indicators of core inflation. It's probably going to bounce, at least statistically, I've, I've done the work on understanding the time series. Statistically, it's probably going to bounce. Like we're not going to go down 629 basis points in month over month annualized core PCE and then down again another month. That almost never happens. In fact, it, it, it never happened in the time series going back to 1950 something. So we're going to bounce in month over month annualized. But does three month does it bounce to a level that allows the three month annualized really to start to come down, right? Like if you if you now you got two of the months in the three month annualized or you know somewhere around one or two, then the three month annualized is going to go from six to three. You know that to me is like if we see that that then I think Federal Reserve officials, the market itself, will start to say, "Holy shit, we might be at three percent inflation way sooner than I thought." That to me is the risk in financial markets. I think we all get the bear case. The bear case is we meander as stochastic and it, we don't break down from 6% annualized core PCE on a three-month annualized basis to three very quickly. The, I think the modal outcome, the expectation in markets is that breakdown takes time. And you know, we're, you know, I think it, the, 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 you should be positioned for that breakdown to take time. It's very rare and anomalous for this kind of inflation dynamism to be happening. So you shouldn't be betting on it to continue happening. But if it does continue happening, then obviously you're going to have to reposition and lean that long. And quite frankly, this is something that I think is, I don't know, I'm probably going to scare investors when I say this, but like if inflation is in fact transitory, I think Goldilocks is probably the modal outcome from an economic standpoint. Because again, you remove all the inflation and all the inflation goes away and we don't have to have a drawdown in the economy and drawdown in total employment. Guess what happens to real incomes? They go up. People spend more. The earnings are higher. Now, again, again, that's not the modal outcome. The modal outcome is that inflation takes time to go from you know six percent three month annualized to three two and a half three percent three month annualized. If it takes time, then 
we, you know, with the bare minimum, reverse repo facility is not coming down. We know quantitative tightening is going to make the Fed balance sheet drain. We know the Treasury general account balance is probably not going to go below 500 billion. So we're going to have a declining net liquidity function. Um, and oh, by the way, we haven't even talked about the left tail risk. The left tail risk is that was an aberration. You know, some it obviously is not all driven by energy because we're talking about, you know, various measures of core inflation, but energy touches everything in the economy. You know, we saw a very significant drawdown in energy in the month of July. And let's just say for, you know, for, for shits and giggles that it did somehow find its way into those measures of core inflation. Well, we're not seeing a significant drawdown in energy in August. It's down, but it's not a significant drawdown. And it's no, and, and more than likely, it's probably not going to continue to draw down once we get to the other side of the SBR release. And so what if inflation just is sticky at five to 6% for the next few months on, a, on an annualized basis? That is the, that opens up the, the, the left tail risk. And I think that's a, it's as reasonable and as you know, probable as the right tail risk. I just don't think investors understand the right tail risk. I think they all get the left tail risk. Right. So now how do we balance? So now we've talked about having kind of your long short exposure. Now going into this print, depending on where we land, whether on the left tail or right tail, how would you adjust positions going forward? Yeah, no. So if we land, if, 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 it, if it looks like three month annualized inflation is going to take time to get to a reasonable level, I think you have to lean bearish. I think if the press shorts, you know, market will probably be down into that or on that, but you press shorts into that because we're not at the right price in, in, in S&P terms because the net liquidity function is going to go lower, um, ultimately. Um, if we, we, we break down and it looks like we're going to take a very quick route to getting to an acceptable level of inflation in annualized terms, then I think you've got to lean bullish at the bare minimum from a net, net exposure perspective. But I'd be concerned as a bear that I'm leaning bullish and I have the wrong factor bets on. Because again, if, we, if, we, if inflation snowballs to the downside, we're all leaning wrong, both from a net exposure perspective in terms of the factor bets, and we're also probably all too short anyway. Or too underexposed to, to upside. Um, that to me is, is my that to me is the number one risk. Like when you think about putting on risk, risk is bi direction. You know, when I put on risk, I'm currently set up for the market to go down and for just defensive sectors and style factors in the fixed income and equity markets to outperform. That's our current portfolio. I'm I I lose sleep at night thinking about the, the right tail because of that. Now, if we were positioned bullishly, I would lose sleep at night thinking about the left tail. So the reason I you know and I have this you know very advanced discussion. It's because I'm thinking about the risk to my exposure, the risk to my portfolio, and they're very clearly uh, centered on the right tail of the distribution. I think if the listeners are going to have any takeaway from this conversation is that we've spent the majority of this conversation actually talking about the case, the case that would invalidate Darius's positioning. Yeah, And yeah. I think that having that frame of mind is what can really save you money and saving yourself money and drawdowns over long periods of time is what will make you money. So- um, I think that this is a very good point for us to start wrapping up the conversation. Um, for those who are interested in finding more of your services, Darius, where, where can we find more of your stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So thanks again for having me on, man. Always a pleasure. You know, you and I can have these very, you know, detailed nitty gritty conversations. You know, you got a buy side background, you know, like, you know, it's, it's, you know, we, we can talk about risk management at a higher level than I think you hear in these, in these, in these kind of finance podcasts. Um, um, so thank you for, for that. Um, so people um, definitely come check us out. We're 42 Macro. Uh, we, you know, we produce, you know, what I think is world-class macro risk management uh, research for, for all kinds of investors. You know, we have clients who manage trillions of dollars. We have clients who are, you know, retail investors, you know, managing thousands of dollars. We don't care. At the end of the day, if you're investing in capital markets, you're investing in assets, you are making macro bets. You might not have a macro process, 
or you might be pretending and lying to yourself that you're not making macro bets. You're a bottom up guy and put the blinders on. But at the end of the day, you are making a macro bet. So you might as well have a sophisticated, world-class, generally right macro process backing you up. So uh, I would say the same thing about Prometheus as well. Yeah, I appreciate that. And uh, I've, I've seen your products. They're fantastic. I highly recommend that our listeners go check them out. Darius, so great to have you on again. Thanks for your time. Uh -huh, man. Thank you so much, man. We appreciate you having me, man. Thank you.